Hi everyone, it's Paul here with the Divided Families Podcast, and I just wanted to take a minute to reflect on this episode with Eugene and Stephanie Kuo as they talk about Hong Kong, the protests there, and how they relate to the situation in the U.S. I think I'm especially grateful for and appreciate the opportunity to release this episode, given that Hong Kong as we know it has effectively changed overnight with the national security law coming into effect at the beginning of this month. And I'm afraid that the differences and divisions over politics, over ideologies that cut across generations that Stephanie and Eugene talk about will not only be aggravated, but also that the impact of this legislation will lead to the physical separation and displacement of families outside of Hong Kong. One thing that I just want to emphasize and that I keep thinking about from this conversation is that there is enough space for everyone because as Stephanie and Eugene mentioned, this scarcity mindset of not having enough capacity or bandwidth, as we like to call it, to care about and advocate on behalf of multiple issues is actually something that we should actively overcome. And if there's one thing that I've learned from this podcast, it's that the sheer intersectionality and commonalities that exist between several instances and issues of family separation is actually something that we should look to glean lessons and takeaways from, and that will help us become better advocates for our own communities. And the last thing that I'll like to plug is Stephanie's play called Final Boarding Call, which uh, is actually, you can purchase tickets um, for an online viewing uh, through the 2020 Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Uh, there's a viewing this upcoming Sunday, July 19th, as well as next Saturday, July 25th. So I just bought a ticket myself, and I'm very, very excited to see uh, the different human stories and uh, generational differences as well that the play highlights. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Stephanie. Today, I'm here with Stephanie Kuo. She's a playwright, actor, poet, translator, very long resume, who is a native of Hong Kong, uh, currently based in New York, but as of recording, also in Hong Kong right now. So thanks so much for being here. (laughs) Yeah, this is fun. She went to college with Paul, but I actually heard about her through my college friend, Jinjin, who actually is also now, uh, she has an episode on this podcast, which maybe you've listened to about the pandemic diaries. And Jinjin uh, shared your blog project about the Hong Kong protests back in the winter leading into 2020. I think it might have been even before the winter, which is so long ago now. It might actually be like Halloween or around there too. Yeah, I think around then. Um, and yeah, we've been trying to find time to talk since then. Finally, <laughs> in the summer, we finally found time. Yeah. And, um, much has changed in the world since we first kind of talked about doing this conversation. So glad that it's finally happening. Um, and I think that the topic of our conversation will also be changed due to that, right? Naturally. Yeah. So I know that you have some thoughts about how the protests have uh, protests in America for police brutality have parallels with that in Hong Kong. And I've been seeing interesting uh, articles about tactics being used and things like that. I know that they are rooted in kind of different causes, but still very much interested to hear your thoughts on that, which we can get into in a bit. And before getting started, I just wanted to say that um, for listeners who 
might be new, there is actually an episode on Hong Kong already with Yiling Liu. Uh, also, wait, do you know her too? Mm-hmm, we're good friends. Okay, yeah. So, um, small world, but if you are interested, you can listen to that episode because that episode has a brief synopsis um, when she talks to Paul about basically like you know a general snapshot of what's going on so in this episode now we don't have to rehash too much of that context but we can kind of dig deeper into the idea of intergenerational separation in hong kong and what i just talked about in terms of protests in general and anything else that might come up because this will be very free as a conversation so yeah i just want to turn it over to you i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, yourself your blog project and also your play which is coming out soon yeah, so I'm. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. My mom's from Taiwan, so I grew up going to school in Hong Kong, but then spent my summers and winters in Taiwan a lot of the time. Um, and and then I went to boarding school in the U.S. and college with Yiling. And so whenever I come back, I spend half my time in Taiwan and half my time in Hong Kong. And when the protests in Hong Kong started, and they started pretty much almost exactly a year ago, or there were some smaller protests from March until June, but June is kind of when they really started in bigger numbers. I was following it, and everyone was following it, but then I started hearing from a lot of people, especially in the U.S., who were just like, I don't know what's going on, the news is so hard to read, don't know where I'm supposed to read things, and I was just like, I don't, (laughs) like, I just felt like it was really frustrating because I was like, why don't people just, like, Google. Um, But because it it seemed like some of the news sources, especially that were more nuanced, were in Chinese or um, were on Instagram instead of like the New York Times, which didn't do a particularly good job, I feel like doing um, an overview of everything. So I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be a little (laughs) diplomatic for them, but they they haven't done a great job for Hong Kong, I feel. And it's, I feel like, especially as someone who's not from Hong Kong, who's never been, who has no ties to it, I just don't know how you would even understand what's going on here. And because there was no like historical context. So I decided to start like a weekly blog just to like kind of go over some of what's going on in the week. And then a little bit of the history of Hong Kong and, and the colonial stuff and the handover to China and all of this kind of stuff so that people would at least have no excuse for not having a place to go to if they needed to learn more in a more concentrated way. And then, because I'm a playwright, I, I was working on a play about physics and was following all this stuff about Hong Kong. And then a friend of mine was like, are you writing a play about Hong Kong? And I was like, no, no. Like, of wait, course wait, I'm wait, not. wait, to just rewind a little yeah, bit. You yes. mean physics, like, like science? science? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I'm totally unrelated. Totally unrelated. Um, okay. I've been working on a play about physics, a, a Chinese, a Shanghainese physicist for like two years, which was fun, but it was also like totally different topic. Um, and yeah, this friend of mine was like, you know, are you writing a play about Hong Kong? And I said, no, like I'm not going to capitalize on my city's destruction. <laughs> um, and, and my friend was just like, you know, if you don't write it, some British guy who's never lived in Hong Kong, a, a white British guy is probably going to write a play about Hong Kong and then you're going to feel really bad and have nothing to like defend yourself with, <laughs> which I was like, that sounds really accurate, actually, because it's just I could totally see it being co-opted as like a topical theme to write about. So I thought about it and, and decided to start writing some sort of narrative about Hong Kong. And then it sort of developed into a play that I feel like tells some sort of story about Hong Kong right now um, and which is going to be read it, w- it was going to be produced as a reading um, in the Bay Area, but of course now that's on Zoom. So. Mm-hmm. And when when is that? Um, it's like 
July 21st or something, like mid-July, but it'll, yeah, it'll, it's with the Bay Area Playwrights Festival, who are doing, who's doing five readings over the summer, um, all by artists of color, I believe. I think they're all women, too. Wow. Yeah, I'll definitely add a link in the description for both the blog and the play, so yeah, thank um, we you. lose track of that. And I do want to get into family things, because yeah. my podcast That's is about podcast. family, um, but I... I can't resist going into a little bit and picking your thoughts on like, I guess, because we I mean, we're a podcast about family, but we're also kind of a um, we kind of talk about storytelling and who's telling what stories and how we can amplify certain voices, things like that. I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that initial, I guess, just like hesitancy to go and tell your story about Hong Kong. Was that kind of something just for Hong Kong or is that throughout your life? I mean, I know for me, definitely. And I'm, I'm not a creative i guess um so i i mean like someone would call this podcast creative but i don't really think it's that yeah, creative, I would call podcast creative. Uh, but i'm not like uh you know i'm not creating art i guess so for me i haven't come up to this uh come against the conundrum of do i want to you know as you said quote unquote capitalize on ethnic things which are very popular now right ethnic right. subjects but i have felt that hesitancy to talk about or be pigeonholed into a certain a single you know identity so could you tell us a little bit about that and why that was a little bit difficult and yeah just kind of wanted to get into that yeah i mean i i think um something that i struggle with is feeling like i i feel like i present in the u.s as very asian american whatever that means (laughs) Or people assume that I spent my childhood there or some on some level and I, I feel very much more like an Asian in America and like home for me is in Asia. And so writing plays and like creating in general in America presents this like weird conundrum that isn't really often thought about, but I think about it a lot, just like the, that my work presents as Asian American from a creative standpoint that feels very Asian and not American. <laughs> that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So like for a long time I was writing a lot about like or focusing on trying to like push for space to, you know, have more plays about and also like pushing myself to write more plays that were like immigrant focused or like like that kind of narrative, but I'm not an immigrant. I, you know, my family never moved to the US um, when I was young. I just went for boarding school and stayed. So I I think the term more so is like a parachute kid or a third culture kid. And so a lot of the stuff that I tried to create is sort of like the in-between space of like people who sort of move but also like still have ties um or telling stories that are more international that apply to the US or that the US um kind also care about or relate to or be affected by and so part of the hesitancy i think of telling more quote-unquote like ethnic or like my stories in the u.s are i I feel like i I always feel nervous that it'll be reframed as asian american in the way that i don't intend i also feel like it's hard sometimes because so much of that story would naturally actually be not in english and this play is in a lot of non-english um namely mandarin and cantonese but i i wasn't sure how to do that for a long time like how much is too much and how little is you know okay um which has changed with parasite i think but not that much Mm. actually um in the theater um like movies are cool but theater is like people still kind of you know want what they want i think but i also think that with hong kong it had to do with like you know, it's like, I think it was different, you know, when coronavirus is only affecting parts of Asia. But now that coronavirus is affecting, you know, the whole world, like, who wants to go see a play about coronavirus? Not really anyone, I think. <laughs> um, 
and in the same way I've, I kind of felt that way about the protest where I was just like like I feel like I'm living the protest from afar or like I feel like I'm feeling it and like I feel like a lot of people in Hong Kong are feeling it so like why would I just like amplify the pain by writing a story about it when I could be contributing by writing a blog and I didn't really see the value of like writing a narrative especially because it was it's a family narrative or like family based narrative and I was just like who cares like who wants to write a, who wants to see a fictional play about a thing that's happening that maybe is more urgent So that's kind of what I was. Yeah, I, I just was struggled mm. like with the with the fiction part of plays that don't feel like you know activism on the streets. I think that's actually a lot of what you said is actually more relevant than <laughs> I had expected. So that's great. Um, in terms of like just for the first part, in terms of family separation, and this kind of ties into what you were saying about how there are many many shades in between, right? Like in terms of Asians in America, like there are so many different. Yeah. shades of that experience and i think that's the same thing with family separation where um and he talked about parachute kids and we have a episode on geese families with yeah. ej ko the writer about growing up apart from her family in korea and that was one of those episodes where we kind of thought that doesn't really fit into like that's not what people think is family separation but i think it is i think she it clearly is. thinks it is yeah yeah so i think it's just uh when we talk about family separation there are so many other shades that we are hoping to bring out so i think um what you said about your experience being different and being very cognizant of that i think that's really important to bring out and and i think the second part about how there is kind of Uh, that's what we also struggle with too with this podcast and I'm sure lots of other artists right now who are either thinking about coronavirus or thinking about Black Lives Matter or any other struggle around the world that's kind of I'm creating art like what am I doing I know it's important but it's or like art or storytelling or anything that's not actually directly on the streets or contributing money or anything like that it's I'm creating awareness but really what's the value of that awareness I guess um, do you think that you have come to like better terms with that now that you've kind of finished the play and have had more time to digest it and I've already kind of jumped into it yeah I mean it just it keeps changing right like I think I've come to a place where I understand what the play is for. Like, it's to tell the story of Hong Kong, not for Hong Kong, because Hong Kong already knows its own story. Like, people here don't need that play. Or I should say, people don't need it to understand what's going on. They might, It might be useful in the future um, when people, you know, are old, I don't know, or when this is all over, or um, when maybe people have the capacity to see more of a family narrative and discuss it from that point of view. But <clears throat> as of right now, I still feel like people are still sort of sort of on the streets in a way that they don't really need to see a play about themselves, especially because the play explains a lot of stuff or touches on a lot of relationships having to do with multicultural or like Western and Eastern relationships um, in Hong Kong, like between Hong Kong and the US, for example. And I think that I've come to understand that the play is for a non-Hong Kong audience, which could be the US or the UK, but it also could be Singapore, Taiwan, like anywhere that's sort of like outside of this place that can make use of that kind of connection. I feel like it keeps changing. Like the play I've set in November of 2019, um, which has a lot of context in terms of the protest. It's kind of when all the universities were barricaded and all the students were stuck. And Uh, for a long time I was working on it, I kept moving the timeline so that I kept it up to date to what was happening in Hong Kong because so much was happening. Like it was set in August and then September and October and then now November. But, you know, with the coronavirus, things have sort of changed and not like stopped entirely, but slowed down in a way that is uh, also political. But even just like I did a reading of it in March in New York, I think March uh, 9th. So 
this is right before New York shut down, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So people still came to the reading, which is shocking to me. Um, but it was really like useful and, and helpful reading. And you know, in one of the scenes, people, everyone in the reading wore face masks because they're protesting. And no one in New York at the time even probably knew what face masks were like in that sense. And now three months later, everyone wears face masks everywhere. So mm-hmm. even just like the, the the fact that the play involves face masks in 2019 feels like the tone has changed by being presented in the U.S., which to me doesn't have a huge difference because face masks uh, had that context since SARS in 2003. So I think it just, it keeps shifting and people keep, you know, people have brought up, like, should we, up, sh- like, do you want to update the play so that it includes more or it hints at or moves towards the direction of coronavirus? And I don't really know the answer to that because I don't feel like it does, but also, like, everything is tied together. So, of course, the protests are tied to the virus and to the U.S. So I think... Like it keeps shifting in terms of like what it, how comfortable I feel with it because I, f- I don't know that I feel comfortable with updating it all the time either. But I am more comfortable with it existing, period. And I do feel like narratives are useful on some level because I think they make space for conversations that don't otherwise happen just from reading the news. Also because, you know, you send an article, an article to a friend and they don't usually read it in my opinion um mm-hmm. so like what yeah, are other go ways to a play though or yeah yeah, yeah or if you force them then they'll have to watch it yeah and i feel like it's a it's a different way of getting people to empathize um and also it, it is a big commitment to watch an hour and a half two hour play um as opposed to a five minute article but the five minute article can take a different kind of motivation to read which might be the play itself i don't know mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit about the play and i think i think that what you said is so interesting in terms of you're trying to capture like if you're trying to capture a moment in 2020 or 2019 yeah. it's actually impossible it's actually it's like, kind of a nightmare yeah so i think that that's kind of uh i mean like funny and uh you know it's like not not actually funny but yeah it's just kind of ridiculous what's going on yeah um, but you said that your play has to do with family so i think that might be a good place to start in terms of uh getting into family in hong kong and intergenerational struggles yeah so could you tell us a little bit about the summary the title yeah. everything? the title of the play is called final boarding call and i'm not very good at summaries of my own plays but i'll try uh it's basically a play with seven people who are all living in based in or involved in hong kong in a different way so two flight attendants on cathay Paci- uh, Cath- pacific flight a journalist in hong kong a indian service worker in hong kong an estranged mother who lives in the U.S. but is originally from China, and a protester who's a sibling of one of the uh, flight attendants, and an American CEO who just kind of flies in and out of Hong Kong because he's based in Hong Kong, um, or his work is based out of Hong Kong, but he's white and sort of goes between the countries. Um, and a lot of the play, I think, is about these people's relationships to each, to each other. So some of them are family members, some of them just met, some of them are in, you know, romantic relationships with each other. And just like, how do you relate to someone who doesn't necessarily speak your language, um, whether that's like literal. So like some people who don't speak Cantonese, some people who don't speak Chinese at all. And then like, what what are the protests about? And what are people fighting for and at what cost? And, and like, I think what's important to me about the play is that everyone in the play, mostly, everyone loves Hong Kong in a different way. And at the end of the day, like, everyone's trying to preserve their sense or, like, their understanding of Hong Kong in a different way, whether that's, like, 
you know, the cultural sense, so like the language and the schooling and the, you know, traditional characters instead of simplified, or whether it's um, the booming economy and the trade and the travel and the, you know, open whatever, non-censorship, that kind of thing. And everyone has an opinion about everyone else's opinion of Hong Kong. So, like, what's important to <laughs> everyone is different. So, you know, like, is is what's most important keeping your job or is it doing everything at, and, like, sacrificing everything at all costs in order to keep the cultural norms of Hong Kong the same and also maintain it so that when you have kids, you can teach them what you learned, which I think are very two very different values. So that's, I mean, a broad overview, I would say, but I think a lot of it has to do with how it's tied to America and China in the sense that a lot of it is capitalism and a lot of it is also cultural preservation or like understanding the history of Hong Kong because I think there is a tension between like wanting to preserve the culture of Hong Kong for the young people a lot of the time and then also for a lot of the older generations like wanting to preserve the sense of Hong Kong which can sometimes feel like Hong Kong is always changing and so like we should just let it change and and having seen that process of change through the decades before the young people were born and then also like what that means in terms of the US and what what does freedom mean I don't know what does democracy mean and what are people actually fighting for I think it gets really confusing when older and younger generations don't have the same definitions well, first of all, I just want to say that play sounds very, very interesting. I'd love to listen to it, and I feel like everybody should. But I've been looking at this quote while I've been listening to you kind of give you give your synopsis, and it's from a New York article called Hong Kong's Protest Movement and the Fight for the City's Soul by uh, Jia Yang Fun. Mm. And this is back in December when we first mm-hmm. started talking. But I was looking at this quote, and I was thinking about what you were saying, and I'm just going to read it first before I kind of say anything about it. It says, The inter-household, intergenerational struggle in Hong Kong is something that's almost unprecedented. Ryan Manuel, a political scientist who runs a research center in Hong Kong, told me, Many parents of today's millennials are refugees fleeing from poverty or political chaos. Their one goal is survival and stability. But their children were raised in one of the world's most cosmopolitan cities. They grew up in the epicenter of globalization, privy to first-rate social services, medical care, and most of the pillars of a liberal society. They speak three languages, at least. They're culturally sophisticated and have a sense of themselves as individuals. Older generations, whether it be Maoist China or colonial Hong Kong, grew up without any expectation of political empowerment. Out of a sense of self-preservation, they kept their distance from politics. But to their children, this position seems like unforgivable quietism and complacency. I forgot to say quote begins and quote ends but uh, not all of that is the political scientists so just for cool. um, academic uh, academic you know citations but this quote i've been thinking about while you were kind of telling yeah. uh, your synopsis of how there are so many layers and how there's so much change and like hong kong as it is now is just it's this moment in time right similar i guess like you could yeah. say it's kind of like 2020 it's this <laughs> chaotic moment in time that is happening and it is not like a stable thing with a particular essence that will outlast a long period of time so that made me actually think a lot about well it actually isn't america also like that you know (laughs) like this multiculturalism that we have now and this collision of uh an older generation and younger generation it's you know that kind of friction is the same here too in america and america has never been like this before (laughs) similar to hong kong right so i think that the parallels are actually a lot stronger than i first thought maybe I'm just you know slow (laughs) I didn't draw that as easily but I was wondering about your thoughts on family I guess and this intergenerational struggle in Hong Kong I'm sure you can speak to Hong Kong better than America but either is okay yeah I mean I think I guess to sort of tie the two questions I think lately seeing the difference in 
different generations view on what's happening in the u.s is really interesting because you know i mean social media is like very interesting and a bit of a nightmare i feel like especially in recent weeks like i feel like it's been inundated with things that i'm not always sure when and how social media is helpful it does seem really useful in propagating information and sharing things and resources and also but also it's like very performative on a certain level so like you know, you can repost 15 posts, but does that is that actually useful? Like, is there something more useful you could do? Um, and I, 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 I think that's very overwhelming. But also, it, it is for a specific generation. Like, you know, my parents aren't learning about BLM on Instagram, right? They're learning about it from the news and from us, the kids, um, and also from friends and conversations, which... So I, there's a big difference, I think, in, like, how people are learning things, which also applied to the protests, I feel... But then on another level, I think, like, the difference between the Asian American and I think, or not the difference, but I think there is, there was, I did feel a, a strange sense of, like, not knowing how to parse out the connection between the protests in the U.S. and the protests here in Hong Kong um, when all this was happening, like, just a few weeks ago in the U.S. because there was so much on social media that was, like, talking about Asian and Asian Americans' complicity and anti-Black racism, which I very much agree with but also felt like um what do we do with that and how do we and like people saying like this is not a time to talk about asian racism in anti-asian racism in the u.s or the west this is a time to focus on anti-blackness and i was a little bit like not sure what to do with that and also see the protests in hong kong and like there was so little room i felt in my american-centric social media to talk about what's happening in hong kong and i think that it did create space for conversations here about blm with my family but I don't know that Hong Kong people have the space or I don't know that a lot of people have the capacity to understand both at once and I feel like I felt like I had the capacity to do it but like you know for my parents for example like they're just like confused all the time I feel and a a lot of the people I had conversations with here you know like I think it's been helpful because I've been able to have more nuanced conversations because a lot of the resources also available online that have been translated and all this other stuff about why BLM is important and not just important in the U.S. but important here. But I think intersectionality is something that's still coming along, um, and it's taking a longer than I expected. You know, like they there was originally a BLM protest organized here, and and this isn't even an inter. I mean, it's intergenerational, I think. But there's so many bubbles of what intergenerational here means. Like depending on when you move to Hong Kong, if you're an expat, and like what kind of Hong Kong you moved to, or when you were born in Hong Kong, you learn a totally different city and a totally different set of social and cultural norms. And I think so. A few weeks before George Floyd died and was killed. A South Asian man was actually killed in Hong Kong by the police. He was killed because the police, you know, put his knee on his neck for seven minutes. So it was a very similar situation. Um, was that like inspired or was that just No, that was before George Floyd. Yeah. So oh, before. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, and that police officer and the police in general have not been charged or convicted, of course. People don't really know about it. I, you know, uh, I think three or f- three out of four people I talked to in Hong Kong have never heard of this incident. And it's never really been talked about. Um, and so when people were organizing the protest here, I, I was I was hopeful that, you know, maybe we could have a more intersectional conversation about it um, in terms of talking about, like, racism in Hong Kong and in Asia, which is also anti-Black, but uh, that it's not as focused on African-Americans because the, the population here has a lot of Africans, for example, or, you know, migrants, South Asian migrants, and the demographic is a little different, but I feel like people are still adapting to how to kind of, like, shift their conversation from, like, 
American-centric, but because the news is also so American-centric to being like global-centric and like global anti-blackness, which also intersects with the protests. And I feel like if even (laughs) the concept of the Hong Kong protests from last year when it was pretty straightforward and anti-extradition in like July was um, hard on some level for some folks here to wrap their mind around, then the intersectional part of it is is also very tough because they've not understood BLM fully. Sorry, this isn't answer your question directly, but... No, no, no. I think that this is very... No, I think that all makes sense and it's very, very interesting because what we have is just this... And this gets to the root of family. I mean, family in terms of like intergenerational struggle and divisions there is because I think that what I'm getting from what you're saying is that there's such a huge, 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 huge gap between a generation that hasn't... And this and technology is a huge part of it, right? Because a right. generation that has been so... I mean, like, more insular and has been worried with local issues more. And then our generation, which is just inundated with yeah. things that we have to care about. And suddenly... <laughs> and we talked a lot about this in maybe our pilot, I think. But, you know, like, we kind of have a responsibility to know other people's stories because we're exposed to them and because we right. live in this inner cultural pot, you know, whether right. it's Hong Kong or America. And, you know, you can't just ignore uh, where people come from and expect to fully understand, you know, their struggle. So we have this unprecedented uh, responsibility to learn everything, basically, which is overwhelming all the time, because, you know, like, how can you expect your parents to be politically correct all the time if, you know, you are barely on staying on top of the new lingo or new uh, what's right and what's wrong. And I agree in terms of your what you pointed out for that kind of complicated feeling regarding where there is space for me to talk about Hong Kong when we're also talking about the protests. And I know that because we shared the photo of the vigil and yeah. it was kind of like, should we post this on Instagram? Because it's right. kind of awkward. Like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, let's just post it and like just not say anything for the rest of the week. Like, that's oh kind God. of what we did. And I think that was the right thing to do. But really, that's not something that I had ever had to think about before, like choosing between one and the other. Right. Um, so... There is a huge divide there, and it's a monstrous divide, right? Like, this unprecedented technology exists, and we have so many more responsibilities. But that, I guess that is one thing, but I also wonder about um, the divisions that we generate, like the stereotypical divisions and then the Mm -hmm. actual divisions, because I think in... Yiling talked about how one of the people she interviewed in Hong Kong, he talked about how his dad is like a Trump supporter and, you know, like you don't care about democracy, but I care about the future and you don't. That's Mm -hmm. like the stereotypical relationship also in America, I guess, too. But I feel like the older generation in many cases did deal with protests and that's exactly why they don't want you to go through the protests, right? right? So I wonder if it's more complex and what do you think about yeah getting a fuller picture of that divide i think that's true i mean I, yeah i i think that's very true i think you know i think like people either and even i guess as a plus to our generation you either go to protests and do that thing and then when you're older feel like never again because i saw how people died and were injured and hurt and exhausted or you think like it was worth it and everyone should do it right so like I think mm-hmm. and and just like un- the understanding of safety is so much deeper, but also the understanding of its worth is also so much deeper that I think even the older generation, I think to say that the older generation is against protest is, I think, too general because I think there are a lot of older folks here who are really, really supportive of the protest and who go and who do all kinds of things. But I will I, I do think that that's a different experience um, from a lot of folks. Like I, I think most parents, 
are concerned for their kids' safety because they're their kids. Even if the parents themselves never went to protest, they kind of understand or they feel like the safety is more important and like that the kids maybe don't necessarily understand what that safety means or that danger. I think that's complicated, especially now because of the coronavirus, because I think now, mm-hmm. in turn... Which has cut directly divide yeah. between that divide. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. And then like now it's like I feel like kids are really worried about going to protest also because they're the ones who would give the virus to the older generation that they're living with who in mm-hmm. you know like the older folks i feel like older folks don't feel like they'll get it <laughs> and so then the young generation has to do the worrying for them but also still want to protest so like and then it's like a whole other thing right mm-hmm. but i mean yeah I, I don't know i mean I think the act of protest will always inherently be dangerous, although I do feel like there are different levels of danger. I mean, health being one now, but also I think looking at Hong Kong and the U.S., you know, like right now, it it almost feels like a scarcity mindset still with attention and resources um, and hoping that things change faster for specific things as opposed to everything at once. There's just so much. And I guess when we first started talking, I was like, we're going to start talking about intergenerational struggles and then you realize oh it cuts in so many so many different ways and it's fractured in so many different ways right Right. Um, as you were getting at so I guess I was wondering to bring this back to your play yeah what are the so the stereotypical divisions which I've already kind of mentioned in terms of conservative older generation more liberal younger generation you had mentioned capitalism and things like that yeah Um, with your cast and you know they might not all be in one family i not sure yeah. about that, but I'm sure that this can be applied to families in Hong Kong, too. So what are the kind of frictions there? And I guess, can you kind of get us away from the stereotypes and into a more specific view? Yeah, well, it's a few different families, I think. I mean, like, you know, like one specific relationship in the play that is important is between an older sister and a younger brother, the younger brother who is more of a vigilante and like pro- uh, leader of the protest movement, and the older sister who works at Cathay Pacific and is trying to keep her job. And what does that mean? And like, what does it mean to try to keep economic stability when the economic part of it is coming from a source that the younger brother doesn't approve of, but also he needs to eat. <laughs> and so like, yeah. you know, it's like, who's taking care of who in what way, right? Because she feels like he's, she's taking care of him economically. And he feels like he's taking care of her because he's maintaining the city they grew up in and she doesn't understand or appreciate it. And I think that's like at the core of a lot of what this is. And like, you know, another relationship is between a couple, um, a journalist and a Chinese journalist and an Indian service worker and understanding that the journalist doesn't speak Cantonese but the service worker does but he's also darker skinned and doesn't fit into the norm of what you know the heteros heteronormativity of like Hong Kong and like being East Asian and the racism he deals with versus like her feeling like an outcast but he's trying to maintain and you know they're both trying to fight for justice in Hong Kong and equality but like I think at the end of the day like and this is the same for maybe the way that governments are run in the u.s it's just like you can't feel what you don't feel like i feel like you can't feel what you don't feel so mm-hmm. not being east Asian, i mean not being south asian or not being black i don't understand what that kind of anti-black or anti-brown racism feels like and so in any relationship where you can't feel what you don't feel there's just going to be friction and that you know and that applies to even like a relationship in the play between this a ceo of um, an Asia branch of a company who's white and American and a gay flight attendant um, who works for Cathay Pacific and just like their relationship and their understanding of capitalism. Like one side trying to keep his job at Cathay Pacific, 
but also trying to make the CEO understand his point of view of what Hong Kong is and what he's trying to preserve and the CEO trying to keep his company afloat and not do the wrong thing and not kind of go bankrupt but you know everyone I think it's it's hard because everyone trying to keep afloat can look like different things like people who want to keep afloat within the system and then people who want to take apart the system which is kind of the conversation happening in the US right now right but I think in Hong Kong it's much more subtle it's not really talked about in such literal terms like people just talk about like oh stability or oh safety but what they mean is within the system <laughs> whereas people who are looking to take apart the whole thing and kind of rebuild it and in an extreme sense i don't think this is what most people want here but i think the idea behind that is just like the system isn't working and so like what can we do to change it but i think those two things are in huge conflict mm-hmm. i'm curious to i guess just for i also was not as aware of this, I guess. So for America and for most of the world watching, the conflict in Hong Kong is just basically boils down to democracy versus authoritarianism, right? So when you bring in the capitalism factor and this internal, uh, right. the internal problems, just yeah. in term, like just for like explaining yeah. 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 to, yeah, just like the average person. Yeah. I mean, okay. So to go from it, I guess, like from a specifically American point of view, America's relationship to Hong Kong is not as idealistic as it looks. <laughs> um, you know, they recently, recently being a few months ago, which right now feels like 10 years ago, signed the Human Rights and Democracy Act for Hong Kong in Congress, which on the surface looks like it supports human rights and democracy in Hong Kong. But what it also does is protect American trade rights in Hong Kong economically. So seeing and recognizing Hong Kong as a separate place, autonomous, autonomous enough from China means that Hong Kong has different trade rules and taxes and that kind of thing applied to it than China. So a lot of people go through Hong Kong to go to China and vice versa because low taxes and there's no like tariffs and all. Like the tariffs between the US and China trade war thing doesn't apply to Hong Kong. So people go through Hong Kong all the time because it's just like an easier and like kind of like a secret way. And so recently with what's happening with China, the US you know, Pompeo and Trump, whatever, decided to call out Hong Kong and say that, like, we don't find it autonomous enough anymore, which on the surface seems like it's saying, like, China, you're not, you know, protecting human rights. But really also what it does is put Hong Kong in a lot of danger in terms of economics, because it means that we will we might not have any of those trade and economic rights that we used to have with the West anymore because the U.S. decided suddenly it is so. And so in terms of capitalism, I think... Hong Kong is oftentimes used as a pawn um, in a way that people don't really understand. Yeah, I guess moving into the last question, just because we're kind of, I don't want to keep you too long, was just, I'm going to condense, uh, consolidate two questions. So mm-hmm. I know that there's no easy answer to this, but what is Hong Kong identity then, or what are its various <laughs> forms? Uh, Ealing also talked to Paul about this and found it difficult, right? Everybody does. And then I also wanted to ask you a question about how Cantonese Mandarin English ties into that. Uh, yeah. uh, that was going to be two separate questions, but for the sake yeah. of time, I'm going to put them together. I don't know the answer is my short answer, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I think... I feel very strongly about Hong Kong identity, and I think a way that everyone here feels really strongly about Hong Kong identity. I think a really diplomatic answer that I don't love, uh, that I don't feel like I agree with, that I don't feel when I hear it, is that Hong Kong is a transient place, therefore the identity is transient. I understand it, but I don't feel that. I think for me, like, it is a mesh of different cultures. So whether that's a mesh of, like, living under different 
colonial rule or living with different languages, people from Hong Kong tend to be able to adapt to different places because that's the nature of the people. That's the nature of how a lot of people here are raised is that the city is always changing and therefore you also have to always change. I don't think that necessarily means that you have to accept whatever's happening, though. I think that's a big difference. In terms of language, I would say almost everyone here is multilingual. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think to say that the language of Hong Kong is Cantonese is very simplified and not quite right because there's so many folks who move here from different places, like even like people who work here from the Philippines, like they don't speak Cantonese, even though they probably have a few words in their arsenal who, when, they, when they have to go take a taxi or things like that. But I think maybe a helpful way to think about it is that in terms of written Chinese, I think the language here is traditional characters, not simplified. Between Mandarin and Cantonese, I think it's helpful to remember that before Mandarin was quote-unquote chosen as the national language of China, um, Cantonese was actually going to be the national language of China, and it lost by, like, two votes or something. <laughs> um, and so, like, in another parallel universe that could have easily happened, Cantonese would have easily been the most widespread language, uh, most widespread dialect spoken in Chinese, in which case this kind of like this fear of Cantonese disappearing or Hong Kong's dialect disappearing would be very different. And the conversation about like why Cantonese is important would also be very different um, because right now no one's questioning the importance of Mandarin in the world, right? And so I think that, sent that part of Hong Kong identity, whether or not you speak it, would be very um, different. I, I myself speak all three, but even so, like there's there are so many nuances in those languages. Like I, I grew up speaking Mandarin with my mom and in school in some ways because my mom's from Taiwan, so I spoke with like a, a relatively Taiwanese accent, and going to school with that accent was different because I'm 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 fluent in Mandarin and um, feel very comfortable. It feels like my native language. But I would do oral exams at school for my. Mandarin Putonghua classes and I would constantly fail because they were always looking for the Beijing accent and so even the way that you speak the language is <laughs> it kind of determines how people view you and your identity and like I don't feel I don't feel I feel very Taiwanese in a way that doesn't really seem to be part of Hong Kong identity so I don't know I think everyone here just sort of like has their own like mushed up together feeling of who they are in this place and how they do or don't fit in I think a big 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 difference though actually is who has a passport to leave the city and who doesn't. You know, like, I think that's a big part of the privilege here and also a big part of the capitalism here. It's just, like, if you don't feel like you fit in and you have an American passport, then does it really matter? <laughs> or, like, mm -hmm. versus, like, and also just, like, what are you trying to preserve if you have a way out versus what are you trying to preserve if you don't have a way out? And what does that fight cost you and what sacrifices do you make? And what does that mean for your family, actually? Because, you know, fighting for something if your family can get out is very different from fighting for something if your family might be in danger from you doing it. So that even that intergenerational conversation is very different and that intergenerational sense of who you are and what your identity is and how fluid you have to be with your identity changes because of the options you have for leaving or staying. Yeah, I think that and so much of that is not up to you because you know your family is not something that you really choose so right. you are given right. these like you said you have a taiwanese accent like that's not something you chose so yeah i could probably go on and we could probably continue talking about family and um your play but i just want to end things here and leave it up to you for do you have any last thoughts that you want people to know things that you think people don't really get that you'd like to just get off your chest um i don't know i i think 
Yeah, I, I guess I just, I hope the media does better. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I just, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like, I feel like the media and social media should feel different. But at the moment, it doesn't really feel that different in terms of the inundation and also the way that it seems really disorganized and also not really informative necessarily. And I hope, I don't know, I hope, I think something that I wonder is also how we can continue to talk about intersectionality in terms of movements and identities and hoping that there's more room for it, which might be actually most possible within families because I feel like that's something that I'm starting to do, I think especially now that I'm stuck in Hong Kong for what will seem like a long time or in Asia in general. I feel like I'm able or like creating the room to have more of those conversations with my family and people here. And also, like, working more to sort of, like, find, like, grassroots organizations or, like, things like that to understand more of, like, what the movement or how different global movements are affecting Hong Kong and what we can do about it on the ground as opposed to just, like, reposting on Instagram, which really, I don't know how much that does for me. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a great point to end on, especially as you ask yourself the question of, like, what can you do? So much of it is conversations uh, within your own family and also within, you know, your circles, like your chosen family. While there might not be as much space in the public bandwidth, there is space in your private circles. So I think that that is a huge thing. And I think that actually, I guess I'll just end with a quote that I was, I wanted to share in some (laughs) capacity for this podcast, but I could never find the way to do it. Um, I don't have the direct quote, but Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the U.S. has been Mm. going around. It's been on a lot of the reading lists surrounding the uh, BLM movement. And one part that I read was about how the family was used as a, tool of oppression especially for Hmm. women i guess but because the state can't reach the government can't reach those pockets so by you know like saying women are inferior or whatever category of people are inferior you are keeping them down but then in the 60s 70s that started to change because the family now became a place where you could kind of rebel against that because that's within our control um and he called it pockets of insurrection which is just a cool term so i just wanted to say that (laughs) share that in some capacity but yeah, thank you so much for your time. I know that it's very early in Hong Kong, so... <laughs> Not at all. Thank you for talking and having me. for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to final albert for the wonderful music and see you next time